With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast. And be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Answer our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And if you don't like Twitter, go to my website. A vote counts the same, LarsLarson.com. And our email address is easy, talk at LarsLarson.com. You know, if you listen to the show, I'm, I'm a bit of a tech nerd. I love technology. But I'm also well aware that almost every single piece of human technology, from the invention of fire to the invention of, uh, of gunpowder, uh, can be used for good purposes and can be used for bad purposes as well. And then I read this fascinating piece by Joe Allen. Uh, who's a writer and tech editor for the War Room pandemic, and he wrote at The Federalist about some new federally funded uh, investigation or, or, uh, I guess, uh, development of technology as it relates to human brains. I thought we'd get Joe on to talk about it a bit. Joe, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Lars. Very glad to be here. Would you mind describing for my audience exactly what has been happening in the way of the, the new monies that are flowing in I, I guess by the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, to do research into how to manipulate the human brain. Yeah, this is actually a major wave in biotech being funded by the federal government, beginning with Joe Biden's executive order uh, September 12th, in which they pledged $2 billion. Uh, the executive order language is pretty disturbing. They're talking about, and this is very common now, but they're talking about rewriting the genome as if it were software. Now, the next day was the announcement of ARPA-H, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, and it will be led by a woman, Renee Wegerson, who comes out of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And this is a billion dollars that will go towards a number of genetic experiments, everything from fertilizer to, uh, you know, microbiome uh, uh, genetic technologies to actually altering the human genome itself. Always safe and effective, right? Yeah, then, right. September 22nd was the announcement that the, NI the NIH will launch Brain 2.0. Now, this is just an expansion of an eight-year-old project, but the goal, the goal of Brain 2.0 is to map the human brain in its entirety. This has been compared to the Human Genome Project, in which a sort of generic human genome was produced in 2003, 
so that scientists could work off of that with the various variations, right? And of course, to manipulate the genome. Once the human brain has been mapped, all 86 billion neurons and all the trillion, trillions of connections between them, or if it's even just partially mapped, then DARPA and various other tech corporations, but DARPA, which is closely aligned with the brain initiative, will undoubtedly begin using that map in order to conquer that territory. And of course, the head of the brain initiative, John Guy, has talked quite openly about the sorts of technologies they hope to employ with the knowledge of that brain map, and they include deep brain stimulation devices to alter mood and behavior. And then, of course, the holy grail, a functional brain-computer interface that will allow the human brain to interface with artificial intelligence on a much more direct level. Now, if I wanted to, I'm talking to Joe Allen, who wrote about this at The Federalist. He also writes at uh, War Room. But, Joe, I know, like I said, every technology that I'm aware of in the world can be used for good or bad. So if you want to look at this charitably, you could say, well, you know, they'll figure out how to cure depression without having to take drugs or they'll figure out how to, you know, cure other problems of human beings. But is that where John Guy uh, seems to want to go with all this? Well, you know, to his credit, his primary emphasis is, of course, on healing. And Renee Wegerson, the head of ARPA-H, she is primarily interested, at least publicly, on healing. But I, I have to disagree with the statement that technology is somehow morally neutral or value-free. Th- value I really don't think so. You can't, no, no hold on, John, just so I'm not misunderstood. Yeah. I didn't say it was morally yeah. neutral. I said every yeah. technology that can be used for good can also be yeah. used for bad. And, and, and you know, uh, I mean, an atom bomb can be, you know, used for good. It can be used for bad. Now, I guess it depends on your point of view and whether or not you're the person it's used on. Uh, I thought I thought Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, saved millions of lives uh, by dropping those bombs. Uh, but I'm sure that some people might disagree. No, but I think every single one of those technologies is even the ones that seem inherent, you know, that seem as though they'd only be used for good could also be used for bad. And what I'm worried about is you documented in your piece in The Federalist that Pentagon has a big interest in this as well, don't they? Uh, absolutely. And, and I guess also, uh, yeah, I don't want to uh, put too, um, too much emphasis on uh, whether a technology is, is morally neutral or to be value-free, right, value-neutral. Yep. Uh, only just to say this, that there are certain likely outcomes to the use of any technology. And there's a certain constrained range of possibilities that any technology has, right? So in the case of a brain-computer interface or direct brain manipulation, there actually has been a lot of really fascinating research and applications, right? So people have reported being less depressed or overcoming chronic depression or obsessive-compulsive disorder or addiction by way of both deep brain stimulation implants but also transcranial magnetic and ultrasound stimulation of the neurons in order to have these sorts of mood alterations or behavioral alterations. What I do think is important here, though, is all of this is based on a paradigm which basically replaces what religious people would call a soul with the brain. The brain in that paradigm is the seat of the personality and the consciousness, in fact, produces one's consciousness. And so, therefore, to tinker with the brain 
is to tinker with, or perhaps you could say perfect the soul, and that sort of technocratic or transhumanist or simply scientistic philosophy really does pervade both the culture at DARPA and seemingly uh, the, the culture at NIH. And so one would assume that the same sort of attitudes will be brought to ARPA-H. And as we've seen in the last two and a half years, with everything from forcing onto parents and communities the, the acceptance of child transgenders, right, or yep. forcing yep. the acceptance of vaccines and lockdowns as a way to upgrade the human immune system, I think that it should be very alarming to see the marriage of the military-industrial complex and the biomedical establishment in this way, given the last two and a half years of history. If you don't want to go back 20 years with yeah. all the various pharmaceuticals, uh, everything from antidepressants. Says Joe Allen, writing at The Federalist, he said, we've entered a bizarre era where sculpting human brains and bodies and the underlying genes may soon be as commonplace as nose jobs. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that I've always been a fan of GMO. Now, like any other technology, there are both good uses of it and there can be some ill uses of it as well. But in general, I want us to be able to use the technology uh, while still controlling it because there are some people who could take uh, genetic modification and go nuts with it, including things like gain of function and that sort of thing. So having said that, uh, I've always thought that GMO, if used properly, was a positive. What happens when you say, no, we're going to go all organic? Well, I know you've probably got plenty of friends uh, who will tell you, no, all organic. That's, that's where it's at. We've got to go there. That's the better place to go. Well, could it actually cause the overthrow of a country's government? And I don't think I'm overstating that. It's not my thought, but I, I tend to agree with it. He made a persuasive case. Cameron English is a journalist and the director of biosciences for the American Council on Science and Health, and he joins me now. Is it Dr. English or is it just uh, Mr. English? Just Mr. English, my friend. Thank you for having me. All right, Cameron English, you wrote, and if I'm not overstating it, the recent overthrow in Sri Lanka was likely brought about by an insistence on organic-only food. Uh, lay it out for my audience, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I wouldn't say that's the only issue, but that is one of the key issues. And the primary reason for that is uh, they banned imports of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides that farmers depend on. It was, it was in the high 90% of farmers in the country needed these tools, as most growers do. And when they banned these as part of this longer-term effort to go all organic, uh, the yields collapsed. Uh, I believe it was one-third of the, of the country's agricultural land was dormant for the entire year. And so you had very severe food shortages. Prices increased dramatically. And the government, as many governments do in times of crisis, deflected blame. So they blamed it on rich people for hoarding food. They set price controls in place, which only exacerbated the problem. Any economists could have told them that. Um, and they were left with disaster on their hands, as we're watching unfold right now. 
Now, Cameron, you realize that that sounds a lot like in a you know a different kind of country in our country where you've got the president who blames greedy oil companies and greedy corporations for inflation and energy prices, uh, and you've got similar deflection of blame. These farmers in Sri Lanka literally lost because of the ban one year ago, lost hundreds of millions of dollars? That's 100% correct. The government now, or I should say the taxpayers of Sri Lanka, uh, who of course are, are severely uh, are much more much poorer now, are, are being made to subsidize uh, the growers in the country to try to make up for these deficits. And of course, the country's broke. Nobody has any money. So uh, people are going hungry. Um, there's a great article in, in uh, Foreign Policy Magazine. I would encourage all your listeners uh, to look it up. But they, they clearly pointed out that uh, incomes had risen dramatically in recent years in Sri Lanka. And, and in large part, this was due to exports of agricultural products. And this all just collapsed. So you have many, many people now living in poverty who had escaped it because of these ideological policies that were forced on farmers. Now, tell me this. Was this a choice of the people of Sri Lanka or were there just folks in the government who were persuaded? And why were they persuaded to do it all at once? Just an just an, an overall ban across the entire country one year ago or a little more. Yeah, very important. Very important question. So, uh, no, consumers didn't have any input in this to the you know, besides electing the president. This was not their decision. Uh, farmers had no input in this. Uh, the country's agricultural scientists had no input in this. They were largely ignored by the government. They, uh, these experts told uh, the politicians, you do this, yields are going to collapse. This is not going to uh, have good results for us. They were totally ignored, and it was largely the organic food lobby um, around the world, not just in Sri Lanka, and specifically an activist named Vandana Shiva, who's very well known. She's been called the rock star of the anti-GMO movement. So she really leaned on the government to, to go all organic, and as I mentioned, as a part of that process, which was supposed to take 10 years or so, they just implemented this ban on these chemicals. And now that there's a crisis, and I hope we can talk about this too, now that there's a crisis, all of these organic groups in the UK and the US and other places, they're backing away from it and they're, they're trying to deflect blame like the government did. And they're saying, well, this is supposed to be a long-term change. We wouldn't recommend this. Basically, they didn't do it right, is, is what they're trying to say. The problem is not the transition period. The problem is that organic farming just can't produce the amount of food that the world needs today. Well, in fact, isn't that the reason it has to be imposed on people? Because if you go to a farmer and say, hey, how would you like to not spend all that money on fertilizer and pesticides and all that? And he says, "Okay, what should I do? Well, just farm without it. Well, he knows or she knows that his yields are going to go down the, the moment he stops using fertilizer. And, and he knows that the, you know, the loss uh, to, to, pest, to either uh, you know, pests, uh, you know, bugs, or to weeds is going to go up dramatically. So yeah, the idea that somehow if you did it over 10 years or 20 years instead of one year, that it would make a different result, th- th- that just doesn't even make sense, does it? No, you're absolutely correct. It was it was a fairy tale. It was a fallacy from the very beginning. And this is why an understanding of economics is so important, whatever the issue is that we're discussing. Because, as you said, growers, like any other business people, uh, they're looking at their bottom line. They want to produce things efficiently. They want to satisfy their customers, which ultimately are all of us who eat food. Uh, and so if there was a benefit to doing this on a large scale, they would have done it already. So the fact that they had to force it by government mandate 
Uh, and they had to, as I said, they had to exclude the input of agricultural experts. They didn't get input from farmers who, by the way, don't know how to grow organically. That's, that's, a, that's a, a, an approach to growing that you have to learn, and it takes a long time. So none of them really knew what to do without access to the tools. Uh, well, but, but, but even if you knew organic farming to a T, would that necessarily allow you to produce the same amount of product that you could produce using petrochemical fertilizers and the like? No, not at all. Not at all. And this is why this is such a problem is because uh, the peer-reviewed research on this question is very, very clear. Crop yields go down with organic production primarily because it excludes a lot of these tools that farmers need. We've, of course, we're talking about fertilizers and pesticides, but genetically engineered crops are not allowed. Uh, and so this cuts yields uh, dramatically, uh, excuse me, uh, drastically. It doesn't matter how much time you take to transition. It just doesn't work as well. Now, the way we have organic agriculture in the United States and some of these other developed Western countries, it works fine because it's it's just a relative handful of people who are buying these products. Um, there are farmers growing for this very niche market, and that works, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with people buying organic food. The issue is when you force it on primarily poor people or people who are just coming out of poverty, that's the tragic part. Yeah, what's really tragic is a country of 22 million people who used to be more than so much more than self-sufficient that they could sell the excess and make money for their country are now in the in the in the problem. They've got to import food, and of course, with tax revenues down because they're not making as much, uh, they don't have the money to bring the food in, and 22 million people are in trouble. That's Cameron English, who's at the American Council on Science and Health. I'll be glad to take the naysayer calls on that as well. I'm sure they're coming at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You've got the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a real pleasure to welcome my next guest. Um, my next guest is somebody who holds a number of titles, former member of Congress. Uh, she is a former Democrat as well. And she is a current lieutenant colonel in the United States Army Reserve. She is the only member of the Democrat Party who served in the House of Representatives at the time, three years ago, who didn't vote for impeachment of Donald Trump. She voted present instead. Tulsi Gabbard joins me now. Ms. Gabbard, Colonel Gabbard, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you this morning. Well, it's great to see you out campaigning for some great folks like uh, Joe Kent. Uh, why are you doing that? And would you mind explaining, you said this, and I don't have the soundbite handy, I can no longer remain in today's Democrat Party that is now under the complete control of, of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by radicalizing every issue and stoke anti-white racism. Yeah, thanks, Lars. I'm out here and, and really grateful to be supporting such a great American in Joe Kent to be your next member of Congress for the 3rd Congressional District. There is so much at stake here, really at the heart of it, as people are struggling with rising inflation, rising gas prices, the government intruding on parents' rights in sexualizing our kids in schools. Uh, the laundry list of issues is long. The problems with this woke Democrat Party of today is serious, foundational and fundamental to them all, is the fact that they are attacking our fundamental freedoms, our God-given rights and freedoms enshrined in the Constitution. And the danger of the party that's in power right now that hates our freedoms and is seeking to attack them at every opportunity is they are doing so by weaponizing and politicizing 
the muscle of the federal government through agencies like the Department of Justice, FBI, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Education. The list goes on and on. And what they're doing is going after their political opponents. This is an incredibly dangerous thing. I'm working hard to elect Joe Kent to Congress because he is not only a great American who is committed to upholding the Constitution, he embodies the word courage. Uh, He speaks the truth, no matter the backlash from the power elite in Washington. He is loyal to one group of people, and that is you, the people and voters of the 3rd Congressional District. And I'm excited uh, for you to send him to Washington. Well, I'll be glad to see him go there and to replace a rhino Republican that I never, you know, at the very end, I I just couldn't find enough reasons, uh, you know, to like her at all. Uh, And I had previously endorsed her in in years gone by. I want to ask you, though, as a former member of the Democrat Party, why is that party that you were a member of, why is it gone this direction? Do they really think this appeals to Americans, and they say, oh, they'll, they'll like it once, once they've been subject to it for a while, because almost everything they do seems designed to antagonize. Uh, I, I agree with you, and, and I think what we're seeing is there are a lot of folks who I've heard from when I announced that I was leaving the Democrat Party a couple of weeks ago who got in touch with me, who said, thank you for saying the things that we feel and that we've been frustrated and angered by, but have been too afraid to say out loud. And that's, that's really the problem here is the Democrat Party has created this culture of fear, this cancel culture, where unless you go all in with the radical woke policies that they're shoving down our throats, then uh, they'll cancel us, they'll silence us, they'll work with big tech to censor us. They're catering to a few of the uh, the most radical voices in the party who ha- who now control the party uh, and forgetting actually the real struggles and challenges that everyday Americans across this country are dealing with that are top of mind and that require urgent leadership and they're failing us on every count. Well, well and in fact, Ms. Gabbard, you've you've come under fire this way too. In fact, as recently as this weekend, you I think you were in the Commonwealth of Virginia and you're campaigning there. And Abigail Spanberger comes out and puts you in league with Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad. And, and you're a serving member of the United States Army Reserve. What should Americans take from that? That these are people who are so afraid. Uh, Abigail, Abigail Spanberger cowardly refuses to debate her uh, opponent, Yesli Vega, who is a brave uh, law enforcement officer and mom who's fighting for her kids and freedom and our future. Uh, and, and because they cannot debate on substance, this is what they resort to. They resort to lies, uh, smear tactics, uh, trying to ruin people's character, and ultimately trying to shut people up. When they say things like that, the message that they're sending to any American who, like me, does not want to see us get into a nuclear war, who does not want to keep sending our men and women in uniform into harm's way in wars that undermine our national security— uh, they won't debate us on substance. They're going to cower behind lies and smears. And I, I hope that the American people see through that. Well, I'm glad to see you supporting Joe Kent. Joe is pro-life. I'm pro-life. And in fact, you've introduced legislation. It was a couple of years ago, but, but you spoke to this as well. And yet the Democrat Party can't brook any kind of limitations on this at all. And they've tried to make it their signature issue a couple of weeks out from the election, even though there are clearly a bunch of things that Americans care about a whole lot more. You're right, Lars. That's that's one of many issues where 
their their positions are radical. Uh, they are extreme, and uh, it, 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 it's hard it's hard to imagine how a person believes that a baby uh, carried to term should still be allowed to be killed and aborted. Their their positions are so extreme and out of touch with most Americans in this country. Uh, you know the fact that that they are actually um, denying the existence of objective truth, denying and erasing an entire category of people, women in this country, by pushing this this transgender identity ideology uh, and forcing it on our kids. You know, kids as young as five, six, seven years old in our schools now coming home because of this ideology being pushed on them in school, saying, "Well, I don't know if I'm a boy or I don't know if I'm a girl." Uh, let let these kids be kids. Let parents raise their kids and instill their values and principles in them. Our schools and the government should stay out of that. All right, Ms. Gabbard, let me ask you about this. I introduce you by saying you were the only Democrat who voted present rather than voting either for the impeachment of Donald Trump in the House in 19 or, or against. Uh, I wouldn't have voted uh, for it either time because I don't think he was I, I don't think he was guilty of high crimes. But I want you to explain why did you vote present and cho- choose to break from your party at that point? Uh, you know, understanding that, of course, I agree with what you did. I wish you'd voted no sure. on it. But but go ahead. Uh, well, the, I disagreed with what Donald Trump did, but it did not rise to the standard, the very high standard that our founders set in the Constitution uh, for the act of impeachment. It is one that is very serious, must be taken seriously, and not weaponized as a partisan political tool just because you don't like the guy who got elected. Our founding fathers warned about this in the Federalist Papers, that, that the act of impeachment should be taken with the grave seriousness that it deserves and not uh, simply used as a partisan driver for people who Uh, disagree with the outcome of of an election. And I was very outspoken about that. This is what the Democrats were doing. They were not happy that Trump got elected. They called him an illegitimate president all along. They sought at every turn to undermine his presidency, denying the fact that the American people's voices had been heard through their votes cast. Uh, And so they, they used the act of impeachment as a partisan tool to try to get him out of office. Colonel, thanks very much for your service in uniform and thanks for your service in Congress. And thank you for leaving the Democrat Party and for campaigning (laughs) for some really great people. Uh, I know you're going to be with Joe Kent at six o'clock tonight in the city of Vancouver. And I wish you both well and God bless. Thank you, Lars. It's great to talk to you. Everybody, make sure you get out and cast your vote. Everyone counts. Absolutely right. That's Tulsi Gabbard, uh, United States Army Reserve officer, currently former member of Congress from Hawaii, left the Democrat Party, is now endorsing conservative candidates. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Glad to be with you and glad to give a shout out to our friends in San Antonio, Texas, who listen to Great Talk Radio on KTSA. That's AM 550. They catch Trey Ware, my friend, in the morning there in San Antonio. And of course, you can hear my show there as well. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Colton. Hey, Colton, what's on your mind? Hey, Lars, how you doing? Very well. I was, uh, I was calling in to talk about uh, religious freedom and the LGBTQ. I had emailed you quite a while ago about it, and I haven't right. had a chance to call in yet. Well, I, I, have, I, can't, I get about 1,000 to 1,100 emails a day, so I'm sorry I haven't committed that one to memory. Make the argument for my audience. What's your argument? 
Well, I just wanted your thoughts on uh, where a person's religious freedom would override uh, another person's uh, choices. Like, I, I am an LGBTQ member, so uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, my so you're talking about was, sexu- uh, sexual, sexual preference versus religious rights. Well, uh, religion is mentioned specifically, beliefs, you know, are mentioned specifically in the Constitution. Sex is not. Uh, but but having said that, you have a right to do whatever you want. It's, it, isn't sex a private matter, or is sex something where you have to wear it on your sleeve? No, I agree with you that it's a, a private matter. Okay, uh, then why it, do you have to worry about your rights at that point? If you say, I have private behavior that I engage in, and I assume that most people's sexual behavior is private. You know, I don't run around telling stories about Tina and me. We've been married for 25 years this year, but I have no interest in sharing that with other people. I don't have to drive down the street with an equal sign on the back of my car. And I frankly don't even understand what that's all about. Could you tell me what that's all about? Why? I mean, I might put a an NRA sticker on my car, uh, although where I live, I'm likely to have my car uh, slashed, uh, get the tires slashed if I do that. But tell me, what is the point of advertising your sexual preference? Can you tell me? Um, I don't do it myself. I don't have bumper stickers on my car, so I can really What do you, what do you think um, of the people in your community who do? I know a number of gay people, and none of them have equal signs on their cars or anywhere else, and they don't wear their uh, sexual preference or sexual behavior uh, on their sleeve. They don't put it on a T-shirt or anywhere else. So so w- what are you asking? If I have religious beliefs and and your religious, my religious beliefs say that your behavior is is shameful behavior. Am I allowed to believe that? Yes, you are. But okay. now, I, in my case, I don't have a religious belief, so I don't view it as wrong. So, does well, your belief override my belief? Well, I'm not trying to override. Where would it override? Where would we? In other words, so I, the famous example of how far my rights go is my right to f- swing my fist ends when it connects with your nose. So when my behavior starts to hit your behavior, the, the fist thing is kind of a famous example. I, I can't remember who did it. I think it was a judge who said my, my right to swing my fist ends where it connects with your nose. But how does my religious belief interfere with your private sexual behavior? So the thing I was thinking of is like sweet cakes where they said oh, they the weren't going to provide a yeah yeah and, and the bakery because I tend, okay just so everybody understands there was a bakery and the bakery served all kinds of people gay straight men women black white and everything else and one day somebody came in and said uh we want to we want a wedding cake made we want you to engage in creating a unique cake for us now that's for i could argue that's a form of speech art takes lots and lots of different forms my speech is just plain old speech but sometimes i write it down on paper but if somebody said to me lars i'd like you to write some stuff for my website and i said well what's your website about and they say no, it's about uh, my racist beliefs or whatever. I'd say, well, I have no interest in being involved in that. That conflicts with my beliefs. So when a customer came to them and said, we want you to make a cake that celebrates a gay wedding, which, by the way, at the time that case first erupted, um, the gay marriage at that point was illegal. It, it was not legal. The Supreme Court had not decided Obergfell yet. And I still don't think the Supreme Court should have been able to do what they did. But having said that, they said... We're not, we will sell you a cake, but we're not going to make a special cake to celebrate something that we deeply disagree with. Now, should they have had the right to do that? 
And if so, who are they discriminating they're, against? Were they discriminating against a gay person? Or are they saying, we don't want to take part in a particular event that we don't believe in? Well, I guess in that case, since they're providing a service to the public, um, like I was raised in a religion. And as that religion... Well, let me give you a service to the public, Colton. Let me give you a service. You open a hotel. Now, you can't turn people away because they're black or because they're white or brown. You can't turn them away because they're Jewish or Catholic or Muslim. You can't do any of that. That's prohibited because you're providing a service. Somebody comes to you and says, we'd like to use your hotel as a gathering for our Nazi group. Can they say, we don't believe in that stuff. That violates our beliefs. We we, We don't want you to... We don't want you to hold your event at our place. Can they turn them away for that? Um, I wouldn't. I guess so. I would say yes. So if somebody says, "Look, I'm I have that, deeply that, held that's Christian," that harm someone. What's that? Well, I believe that's something. You know, that's a well, belief. But that hold harms on, Colton. If you so. say it harms somebody, every time anybody is turned away from a business, it's it causes harm to somebody. I mean, if somebody says, "I yeah. want to stay in your hotel," and you say, "No, you can't stay in my hotel." Uh, that that they have to go find another hotel, which the the gay people who brought the the case against the Sweet Cakes Bakery were not harmed. They could have gone down the street to any number of other bakeries, or they could have said, "Yeah, make us a cake." But like I said, double standards are none at all. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I got to share this with you because this story is getting a lot of traction. In fact, you've probably seen it on television, may have seen it in the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, the pathetic Oregonian. Uh, it may even turn up in the Seattle Times or elsewhere. But here's the headline, and I want you to listen carefully because those of us in the words business, I think we ought to take words seriously. If I say somebody is a convicted murderer, I'd best be telling the truth. In other words, you don't just say, well, I think he killed somebody. If I say he's a convicted murderer, he should be a convicted murderer. And if he's not, then I'm being dishonest. Here's the headline from the fish wrapper. Gas stoves are hazardous to your health, Multnomah County Report says. Now, the thing is the newspaper will say, well, we're just reporting on what we're told. No, you should actually be skeptical. Gas stoves are hazardous. Not might be, not maybe. They are hazardous. And then they modify it in the first line of the story. Your gas stove can make you and your children sick. That's the message of a new report released yesterday by Multnomah County, which recommends transitioning away from natural gas stoves and other gas appliances because they release dangerous air pollutants. The report says that children living in homes with natural gas stoves are 42% more likely to experience asthma symptoms, and 24% more likely to be diagnosed with lifetime asthma. So Multnomah County has a brand new study. Well, I shot out a note to my friend, Todd Myers, at the Washington Policy Center, because Todd has really good connections when it comes to things like studies on pollution. And here's what he found out. He said, Lars, I looked at the study, and he puts study in scare quotes, and it cites a report from EPA in 2008, 14, almost 15 years ago. And he says what that report did was look at previous studies. So the studies themselves are about 15 to 20 years old. Multnomah County didn't do a study. They looked back at something from 2008 that looked back at studies that were even older than that. 
He says also in a quick search of the EPA study, which is their only source, it notes there is no correlation between gas stoves and asthma in single-family homes, only in multifamily homes. So I went back to the fish wrapper story and thought, maybe I missed that part. In other words, in apartment buildings, apartment buildings, you have higher levels of asthma where there's a natural gas stove. But in single-family homes, you don't. You say, well, why would there be that difference? Maybe it's square footage. What Todd says is they may actually be measuring the impacts due to poverty, not gas stoves. But I haven't looked at it closely, and the study is 260 pages long. I couldn't find a single reference to the 42% in the EPA study, but that may, may have been taking data from the appendix and then applying it. He says, frankly, it doesn't surprise me that gas stoves would have more nitrous oxide in the house than electric stoves. This is going to be some residual impact from burning methane. The question is how big an impact, and the number seems way too high to me. It's also odd that they're using a 2008 report with studies from before that and then releasing it as though it is a brand-new finding. That makes me skeptical. And then he he left me with one paragraph that he had pulled out of this old EPA report from almost 15 years ago. And the key line is this. No significant associations were found between levels of nitrous oxide and symptoms for children living in single-family homes. Now, go take a look at the fish wrapper story or consider the story you saw on television and ask yourself, The scare headline is, natural gas stoves are hazardous to your health. And what do they base that on? A 2008 report drawn from studies that are older than that, studies that say there are no health hazards, adverse health effects, no sign of them in single-family homes, only in apartments. And as Todd pointed out, the most likely cause there, what is the biggest difference in most cases between people who live in single-family homes and people who live in multi-family homes, meaning apartments and condos and the like? The answer usually is income. And is there a higher incidence of asthma among kids in low-income families than in high-income families? And do they have as much access to the doctor or to medicines or anything else? And you know what the answer is. I also know what I think the agenda is here. Natural gas is being attacked from all sides. And then I'll point out, that the natural gas, the folks in the, in the Northwest, and I got no dog in the fight other than that I use natural gas in my home, Northwest Natural Gas and the other suppliers of this valuable fuel that has helped cut air pollution in America dramatically over the last 20 years, they weren't even invited to the party. Multnomah County didn't go to them and say, hey, we think we found some studies that say your stuff is making kids sick. And Northwest Natural pitched a fit, and they should have, to say, listen, You can't do this. You come out with this big report. You don't even give the industry that's affected by it the chance to counterpoint it and maybe point out that your studies are not really studies or they're from a review of studies that was done 14 years ago. You got nothing new in there, and this doesn't affect people in single-family homes. And I guess it's just beyond the capabilities of the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper and Therese Bottomley, who runs the paper, to say maybe if it only affects kids in apartment buildings, we should point that out. And maybe the studies were actually studying the effect of poverty and not studying the effect of cooking on natural gas. Now, with that in in mind, let's go to a First Amendment Friday call. Naysayer Steve is on the line. Hey, Steve, welcome to the program. Glad you called. What do you and I disagree about today? 
uh, regarding 2024, our number one job and focus is to get these clowns out of office. And I, I really have strong concerns about Trump. He, he d- cannot talk to middle America or left-wing America. He has one way of speaking to people, and he speaks at people. If he can change that, and if, his, if the people around him can teach him how to talk to Americans, I think we have a shot. He has wonderful policies. I love listening to him, but most Americans don't get him who hate him, and they never will. And that's my biggest concern about Donald Trump. Can I, can I cite a data point and just ask you to answer that? You've made the charge that he doesn't communicate well with middle America. I don't think Joe Biden communicates well with anybody, but we'll leave Joe Biden aside. Well, I agree. Okay. Yeah. But when it comes to Trump, if it is true, if your the- and since we're talking science and natural gas and all that, if your thesis is Donald Trump doesn't connect with middle America, is it true that Donald Trump, as a sitting, every president who's done four years tries to get another four years, at least in recent memory. So Donald Trump ran for re-election. He got, as a sitting president, the greatest number of votes that any sitting president seeking re-election has ever received. And that includes Barack Obama, who got just, you know, accolades all day long from the mainstream media and all kinds of help from everybody else. Even he didn't get as many votes as Trump. So if it's true that Trump doesn't connect to Americans, how in the heck did he get the greatest number of votes any sitting president has ever received when he sought re-election? I, I can't argue that, that data point. Well, okay, can I throw, I, then, I, I then, just, then let's throw in a second data point. Right now the polls okay. have been asking people, you know, the, the nomination is going to come up in the summer of, of 24 for the 24 election in November. Uh, Right now, when they take polls, 71% of Republicans say they want Donald Trump as the nominee. Back in a moment, more of your calls on the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Now, you've heard my take on the Electoral College. I think there's a reason the founders put it in the Constitution, and not just the fact that it's in the Constitution, but that it serves a purpose. It says that America is not going to elect a president based on popular vote, And I know there are people who say, well, it'd be much cleaner if we did it that way. Yes, it probably would. You'd be able to take the populations of the top 10 cities in America and say they're going to decide who the president is. But the founders, even with 13 original states, said, no, we're not going to do it that way. We want all of the states to count. And they did it through the Electoral College. Bob Hardaway is a professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Professor Hardaway, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be there. You've made a real strong case for preserving the Federalist principles that were incorporated into the uh, Framers' plan, the founders I was just mentioning a moment ago. And yet the left, even now, seems bent on getting rid of the Electoral College. What should we make of that? Well, I think it's it's mainly just, um, you know, elect, electoring, elect, I think they're just trying to make some elect, uh, points in the election. Um, they really can't abolish the Electoral College. Um, as you know, the Electoral College was a grand compromise proposed by Benjamin Franklin because there was, um, a, there was um, no hope really of creating one country at the beginning of the Constitutional Convention. George Washington said, I, I don't even think we have a chance of having one country uh, because the small states wanted um, to have the Every state would be represented uh, equally, and the large states wanted to be based on population. And the convention was breaking apart, 
uh, until Benjamin Franklin said, let's do both, let's have a compromise. And the compromise had two, two prongs. One prong was that each state would have equal representation in one house, the Senate, and the, uh, and the other house, uh, uh, in, the, in the house, in the house, the, um, the population would be based on population. Right. So, um, and also tied to that compromise was the Electoral College, because the Electoral College is based on the number of senators that a state has. And people want to take away that. And the, the small states, when they agreed to enter the union, said, we want to guarantee that you can't abolish the Electoral College. And you can't abolish the Senate either, because they're part of the same compromise. And that's why they put in um, Article 5. And people don't even know about Article 5, or if they learned about it in second grade, they forgot about it. But Article 5 says you can't take away equal representation in the Senate, upon which the Electoral College is based, unless every state agrees. It's the only provision in the entire Constitution which cannot be abrogated by constitutional amendment. So when they're when they're talking about abolishing the electoral college, and about and some of them go uh, also realize that involves abolishing the Senate, uh, they don't understand. They have never read Article Five, which was the poison pill that the small states inserted to make it absolutely guaranteed that 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 system would never be abrogated. Because even by if, constitutional amendment. Yeah, if you went to all 50 states and said, can we agree on this? And all the low population states, I think of where my granddaughter was born in North Dakota, they're going to say, no, we're not, we're not giving that up because we at least have some say. We have one member of Congress. Uh, I think Montana's about to get two. Uh, and, and then we have two senators. We're not giving that up. A- and yet somehow they think they can do a workaround some kind of compact of states that would allow them to effectively negate the Electoral College. Do you think that would pass constitutional muster if they said, you can go ahead and have the Electoral College vote, except that if somebody wins the popular vote in a particular state uh, nationwide, then that state would change its Electoral College votes. That seems like a workaround that, that wouldn't pass the smell test. Well, it doesn't pass the smell test, but it's also based on a grand illusion that's fostered by the media, unfortunately. Um, the, the, what you're talking about is the Interstate um, National Popular Vote Compact, yep. which says that states, if they want to, can allocate their electoral votes based on the popular vote around the country. But the problem is there is no popular vote around the country. People still believe that when they go into the voting booth, they're voting for a presidential candidate. No, they're doing just like they do in England with, uh, in their electoral college. They call it the parliament, but it performs the same uh, function. You vote for an elector and who promises to vote for an electoral candidate. But a lot of the electors in 2016, for example, the Hillary electors said we want to vote for a Republican instead of um, instead of Hillary. Um, well, I mean, how do you count the popular votes for uh, for a cast for an elector who has promised to vote for Hillary, but actually says, I'm going to change my vote to a Republican? How do you count the popular vote? How you do don't. you count the popular votes for uh, electors in states which are have unpledged electors. How do you count the popular votes? There's no way to do that. There's no such thing. It's based on an illusion. On election night, people watch the TV screen, and at the bottom it says so-and-so has a popular vote. That's not true. It's the electors that have it. 
have the elect and in half the states, electors are not even required to vote for the for the presidential candidate. So all of so that, even if, no even if they got the compact together, Professor Sturm, or Professor Hardaway, uh, even if they got the, the compact put together and then compacts require the sign off of Congress, which I don't think they'd get, uh, that, that even if they put it together, it'd be so uh, legally and constitutionally fraught that it would probably never actually see any use, would it? Well, that's true. There's so many constitutional problems. I can't do it in a 15 minute, you know, soundbite. But I'm just presenting one of the problems is there's no way to count the popular vote for a candidate because you don't vote for a candidate. And half the states don't even require electors to vote for for a particular candidate. So there's no way to count a popular vote. So that's out of the window. That's just electioneering. Um, It's basically an attempt to try to get the United States to do an in run around the Constitution and adopt the Russian system. The Russian system, they don't have an electoral college. So you have seven or eight candidates. You have an extreme, you have an extre- uh, communist at one end. You have the, you have an extreme right winger at the other end. And the most organized parties can get twelve percent, fourteen percent. The other parties are split, so that you have, uh, uh, you have a per- uh, you have a person who got say twelve percent in a runoff with a person who got fourteen percent, and you get somebody elected opposed by sixty percent. <laughs> the French have adopted this system, and they and the 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 citizens of that country, where I am right now, by the way, um, have expressed their outrage. They had twenty two percent voted for for the extreme right winger, twenty eight percent or something like that voted for a, a, a person that most people hated, and so you had a, a, a so called runoff between the two top vote vote getters that was opposed by 60 percent and so outraged was that where the public uh, was the public that they cast three million blank ballots to register their (laughs) outrage for the russian system which is what the left is now proposing for us no and and, 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 it's been over the last 200 years we've gotten presidents elected I'm so glad that you straightened that out for us because, Professor Hardaway, I want people to understand this, and I want them to understand the magic of the Electoral College, that you've got it locked into the system and that it actually protects the rights of all. And I so appreciate you coming on the program. That's Professor Bob Hardaway, who's a professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Professor, always a pleasure. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as I always remind you, liberals need to have double standards or they'd have no standards at all. So consider this. Ordinarily, if you had an incident in which 53 human beings, not just 53 human beings, but 53 people who are foreign nationals, who are not poor, not rich, uh, not affluent, not well represented, the deaths of 53 people in one place would be shocking, and the left would be all over this, saying, oh, we have to do something about this. I think the reason you hear a deafening silence from the left and from the White House is that these 53 who died, died because of the policies of the Joe Biden administration. They died in the most horrific way. The death toll is now 53. Uh, that's 13 women and, uh, and 40 men who are in a basically a metal box, a tractor-trailer trailer that was outside of San Antonio, Uh, Parked there because it had engine trouble, fake license plates, fake logos, loaded with illegal aliens. And those people died because they baked to death inside that metal box. Now, 
I thought we'd talk about that with Laura Reese, who's a senior research fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation and the former acting deputy chief of staff at Homeland Security. Ms. Reese, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. How much does how much how much of this uh, is is as a result of Joe Biden's policies of open borders and lax enforcement? Well, it's completely a result of uh, the administration's open border policies. Uh, smugglers know that the border is open and continue to push people through in, in various ways, whether it's inside a truck or uh, you know through the river or, or other or other manners. Uh, Migrants south of the border know that the border is open because they keep coming from all over the world, basically three-quarters of the globe at this point, uh, because no matter what the administration says, whether Secretary Mayorkas or the press secretary, they can continue to say the border is closed. Uh, but so long as someone gets through and calls home you know, to their home nation and say, you know, I got through, come on, it's going to keep happening, and we're going to have more deaths whether it's deaths of migrants um, or uh, deaths of Americans at the hands of criminal aliens who should not be here or uh, terrorists. And Ms. Reese, ordinarily in America, people are shocked if a crime is committed. But if a crime is committed with a financial motive, you know, killing somebody for money, killing somebody for life insurance, burning your house down for money, Every time you add money to it, I think you amplify the nature of the crime because you suggest you're willing to hurt people in order to get money. This isn't being done for free, and it's certainly not being done as some kind of ad hoc activity where a bunch of illegal aliens get together and charter a long-haul truck. This is being done by criminal organizations who are making a lot of money on this, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, they've never, ever... um earn this much money than under the Biden administration. And the Biden administration won't take blame for this. They they will deflect blame on this like they do every other issue, be it inflation or, or otherwise. Um, they like to pat themselves on the back that, you know, they might be catching more smugglers or starting more investigations of traffickers. But it is they themselves who are enriching the smugglers and creating the trafficking victims. So it's as if they are creating the weather and then stand in the rain and complain, oh, it's raining. Um, They need to uh, shut down the border and then this stops. If you put in policies that prevent illegal immigration, then you don't get the smuggling, you don't get the trafficking victims. And then you don't have to go spend money chasing people down for investigations. Is there any legal mechanism? I mean, because this is the question I get from callers all the time. They'll say, look, if this is against the law and there are people who are sworn to faithfully execute the laws of the United States, uh, that, that you'd say, well, there should be a way to make them do their jobs. Is there a way to get the federal courts, let's say, to tell the, the president, if, unless you want to change the laws over on Capitol Hill, and Biden hasn't tried to do that yet, at least not successfully, then you have to enforce the laws that are on the books. Any way to make that happen? Well, states have been trying to and have been suing the federal government over a host of these immigration issues just since Biden has been in office. And the states are winning. Uh, but then you get the administration that doesn't really comply with the court orders, whether that is uh, using Title 42, the public health authority, for COVID purposes or uh, fully reinstituting um, Remain in Mexico or not um, limiting what ICE can do uh, in terms of arresting and detaining and removing 
to a very short list of priorities, and, and the list goes on. So if you've got an administration that, one, won't follow the law, and then when you go sue them and win in court, and then won't follow the court order, you know, where are we at? And so we need members of Congress to really yank on the funding uh, of the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department, um, HHS, and the State Department where relevant to just stop this um, processing and paroling and mass um, asylum in its tracks. Now, you know, we're going to have to wait, hopefully, for the, at least the House to flip, and then, you know, you need members with strong spines to, to do this. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of contingencies there, um, but the regular mechanisms in law and in the Constitution are not being followed right now. Yeah, and, and and waiting till January doesn't seem, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem acceptable to me. Let me try another route. With the federal judges, you say the judge says you have to do this, and then the president just says, hey, judge, pound sand. Is any, I've, I've watched judges before, and to use a real pedestrian example, I've watched judges say to somebody, take your hat off in my courtroom or I'll find you in contempt of court and I'll throw you in jail. I mean, judges, and especially federal judges, have some power. They've got some teeth, and they have access to the federal marshals and others. Is there any judge out there angry enough at having the president thumb his nose at the federal judiciary who's willing to say, okay, fine, Uh, then Mayorkas is going to be in handcuffs and hauled off to a jail cell, even if we just have to do it to make a point? Is there anybody, is there a judge out there with a spine? Well, we haven't seen it yet, but I I do think we're at that point. Um, And we're going to get another decision from the Supreme Court tomorrow regarding Remain in Mexico. Uh, Now, a Texas federal judge has already told the administration you need to fully implement it. And what the administration does is it will implement it a little bit, say, yes, court, we're in compliance, when really they're not, they're some in their nose. So, yeah, we need some judges to take that next step, you know, use the next tool that they have to enforce those orders. You're right. I guess. I guess, Ms. Reese, it it just I know there's a bunch of there are a bunch of judges out there that especially during Trump, they love the idea of throwing out a decision and they knew it would probably get overturned later on. But they'd say, I can do this. I can shut down the, you know, the the so-called Muslim ban, which wasn't a ban on Muslims at all. But but they do it even if they knew they'd get overruled later on. And I think they like the idea. I've got some authority. I'm going to use it. I, I guess it just kind of amazes me that when when the, the president and his administration are just not doing this at all, that there aren't some judges who'd say, OK, I'll show you because the judiciary has some power as well. And, and it surprises me that for all the judges love to come down with controversial orders, I, I think it, it sometimes makes their name or or at least shows their their political leanings. You know, they can say, see, I did that even if it got undone later on, uh, that in this case, you'd think there'd be at least one of them out there who'd be willing to take some action. Well, I hope you're right. And, I, and yes, I mean, we deserve it at this point because Americans, um, you know, they have a right to have the laws enforced um, and to have some protection uh, against what this administration is just being so reckless about. Um, I, I would note a bit of a side, side yes. uh, piece of of interest and, and perhaps uh, encouragement. Um, so when you talk about the question of invasion and can states act on their own when the federal government won't, and right. we've had the attorney general from Arizona issue a memo saying, yes, this is an invasion. It's up to the governor to proceed. 
Absolutely. Laura Reese is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Reese, thanks for the time. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I've been looking forward to talking to Brenna Bird, who I've never spoken to before, the attorney for Guthrie County, Iowa and a GOP candidate for Attorney General. Ms. Bird, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. So tell me this. Uh, an awful lot of America, I don't think of Iowa as sort of the poster child for rising crime the way New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco are. But you're still concerned about this, and you think as Attorney General for Iowa, you could actually make a, a big difference in the way that uh, that crime has been uh, surging in America, for lack of a better term. Yes, yes, we can, because with what's happening on the southern border, every state is now a border state, and in Iowa, we're fighting methamphetamine and fentanyl and other problems that are coming from the Biden's administration failure to do their constitutional duty. Well, I keep telling people that the DEA says, and the DEA has said for years, 90 to 95 percent of all the hard drugs that are coming into the country, the ones that are causing overdoses and causing criminal gangs that traffic in them to shoot up neighborhoods. This is a problem for just about everybody. But how does an attorney's an attorney general for a state actually fight back against that? Well, I'll tell you, I fight back as Guthrie County attorney in rural Iowa, and I know I can do that as attorney general, too. If we can do it in Guthrie County, we can do it for the whole state. And it just means you work with law enforcement, you support them, you prosecute those cases, you give people uh, consequences so that they will deal with their addiction, and you do everything you can to to lock up the drug dealers and to work your way up that food chain, including uh, working with federal prosecutors if they'll take those cases and get those bad guys off the street and the guy I'm running against just doesn't doesn't have involvement in that just doesn't care um, and he's been the longest serving AG of any AG in the entire United States you know I I know that usually when I talk to politicians or people running for political office I won't call you a politician yet uh, but usually you don't mention the competition but I wanted to ask you what are his ideas for dealing with these crime problems and and how is he showing his lack of regard his fecklessness on this well, I mean, first of all, his his biggest idea this year seems to be that he wants to get elected, uh, but he hasn't really said what he's going to do when he gets elected that's any different than what he's been doing so far, which, you know, what he does now is he is a liberal AG out of touch with what Iowa needs. Uh, he follows the Biden administration. He's more like their attorney general than, than Iowa's attorney general. And when it comes to law enforcement, you know, we have 99 county sheriffs in Iowa, and I go and meet with them, uh, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. And it is shocking that most of our sheriffs, elected sheriffs, have never met the attorney general a day in their life, even though he's the top law enforcement official. Unbelievable, right? How is that that even possible? Because I I would imagine it isn't for lack of the sheriff saying, I don't have time. I would imagine most sheriffs would want to talk to the top law enforcement official in the state, the attorney general. What what is what does the AG say about what not enough time in his schedule or something? Well, I think he's just too busy uh, going out to Washington and, and hanging out with the Biden administration or or who knows what, because it's sure not meeting with sheriffs throughout Iowa. And, and you're right. They are good to meet with. And, and they have some needs and some problems in their communities. And as attorney general, I'm going to work hard uh, so that they have somebody in the AG's office to help them with what they're trying to do in their areas to stop crime. 
You know, it's funny because uh, we we have, we ask a poll question every day, usually out of the news of the day, and this one involves this young lady who uh, pleaded guilty to involuntary no voluntary manslaughter, and then was told she had to pay one hundred and fifty thousand dollars compensation because she pleaded out to deliberately killing a man. Now. She justifies that by saying, well, he was raping me. But I, I've had people say, well, how dare a judge judge? I said, it wasn't a judge. It was the people of Iowa. And, and I said, actually, I think it's a terrific idea. I wish, I don't know how many other states do that. Say, if you cause somebody else's death through homicide, you know, whether it's a DUI homicide, a negligent homicide, a, a manslaughter, involuntary or voluntary, you ought to pay the, some compensation for that person's death. Uh, I think it's a terrific right. idea. I don't know how long it's been on the books, but you, you ought to sell that idea to, all the, to the other 50 states, although the blue states yeah. may be less than crazy about it. Well, it's been on the books for a long time because the idea is whether somebody's a fancy Harvard lawyer that makes a bunch of money or maybe they're a veteran that's living on veterans' benefits, uh, the judge, the court, shouldn't be deciding how much a victim's life is worth. That's why the no. legislature specified the number. Well, and in fact, if it's the fancy lawyer, chances are his family probably has millions of dollars in insurance because most people who make a bigger income get bigger insurance. I worry more about the, you know, the mom and pop example, the Iowa farmer who's killed by a drunk driver or killed because somebody, you know, mur murders them in whatever way, you know, whether it's, a, as I said, manslaughter, negligent or whatever, um, that you say when that breadwinner is gone. Uh, or when mom is gone from a family, that family needs some help. They, they may need it a whole lot more than the Harvard lawyer does. You are so right, and you are speaking my language, because as a prosecutor, getting to work with victims is one of the most rewarding parts of the job. It's also one of the hardest, just seeing everything that they go through. It is hard, and they get that criminal restitution. Hopefully, they can also get some civil restitution, but sometimes these criminals don't have insurance or they don't have uh, anything that is recoverable. So it can be pretty tough for families going through that, much less the loss of a valued family member. That's uh, Brenna Bird. Coming up in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. And we'll talk about, well, Joe Biden and whether or not he can deliver on green energy. Does anybody remember how he failed to deliver when he was vice president, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I would guess that Adam Andrzejewski might agree with me. The CEO and founder of Open the Books and a columnist at Forbes magazine and Forbes.com. He might agree with me if I said there, there are plenty of theories and plenty of things at the Export-Import Bank that might lend themselves to conspiracy theories. Adam, welcome back. Great to be on the program. So would you mind talking about what some people disparagingly call, and I like to call, the Bank of Boeing? Yeah, well, it is the Bank of Boeing because $66 billion over the course of, you know, since 2007, out of $200 billion in lending, has been given to Boeing on Boeing deals for aircraft sponsored by the United States taxpayer, guaranteed and insured by the taxpayer. So it's absolutely outrageous. Well, I guess one of the things I've always been curious about, I've had people say, well, you know, the Bank of Boeing loans to all of the, the, the people, the customers, you know, countries in most cases, or, or, or commercial entities within countries. I don't know if you'd distinguish the airlines of China from the government of China, because it's all basically the same thing. But um, they loan to those who can't get the financing any other way. And I said, that sounds like a really bad way to loan money. I mean, if, if, they, if nobody else will loan them money on good terms, uh, that they don't sound like a good credit risk, are, are they? 
Well, they're not. So since 2007, our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com found that we've lent Chinese companies. You know, and those, those companies, look, there's virtually no distinction between a Chinese company and the Chinese Communist Party, who holds license over those businesses. And we've lent them more than $6.4 billion guaranteed, insured, courtesy of the United States taxpayer, through this bank that no one's ever heard about. It's called the Export-Import Bank. It's little known, but it's not like your local credit union. It's part of our federal government, and it spends billions of your tax dollars, oftentimes in hostile nations. Now, Adam, I'll make, if people are wondering, then why do we do it this way? I've heard the argument put this way. I don't have to agree with it to understand the argument. They say, well, Boeing wants to sell jets, and let's say... Sudan wants to have some jets for its air, you know, for its uh, commercial air service. Uh, if they can't get the if they can't get the financing, then they can't buy the Boeing jets. And we want Boeing to sell things. We want General Electric to sell things. And I guess my argument has always been, well, if we're selling them jets or we're giving them or loaning them the money under favorable terms, so they'll buy American products because otherwise they'll go buy from Airbus or somebody else on the planet. Um, that doesn't sound like a really good deal for the American taxpayer. It sounds like it's a great deal for Boeing. Maybe Boeing should go into the banking business. So let's take three hostile nations right now, China, right. Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Okay. So in 2021, and the first quarter of 2022, U.S. taxpayers through the Export-Import Bank, we, we subsidized, we guaranteed, we insured nearly a billion dollars worth of financing. And most of it went to Boeing. Over $800 million went on Boeing deals. This is literally the bank of Boeing. And why does Boeing get to capture a United States federal bank? Well, they, I, I know Boeing would argue, and again, I'm not a, I, I, I've flown on Boeing airplanes, but I don't have any dog in the fight. I have no financial connections to Boeing. They would say, well, do you want us to still make the number one, do, in dollar terms, the number one export from the United States is jets. Caterpillar Tractor might be number two. Maybe it's Microsoft uh, computer software. But Boeing does make the number one uh, pr- a product export from the United States, and export is still a pretty big business. I think it's about... 12 or 13 percent of our economy and they say if you want that to keep going somebody's got to finance those jets and so how would we answer that 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 uh, that counter to the idea that the government should do it is there any private a private sector lender that would make the loans if if the xm bank did not so first off during about a three-year period xm bank the export import bank did not have a quorum and donald trump refused to nominate board of director members to make a quorum. And what that meant was for that period, the Export-Import Bank could not do the big loans. So they couldn't do the Boeing loans. And Boeing was just fine during that three-year period. <laughs> so, so, you know, <laughs> we Boeing has hundreds of lobbyists. They gear up and they make these arguments because it's in the interest of Boeing, of course. But practical experience tells us another story. All right. So is there any way to, ref- I, I know everybody uses, overuses the word reform. Is there any way to change this arrangement uh, to say, we don't need to do this anymore, or if we do, we need to do it on a much smaller scale than the XM Bank does it on now? Yeah, I think, you know, this goes right to Ronald Reagan's quote, where the, the uh, best example of eternal life on earth is a government bureau. This export-import <laughs> yeah. bank 
was founded by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1934 to spur international business in the midst of the Great Depression by guaranteeing, you know, using taxpayer guaranteed loans for exports. And, and you know, it's just not necessary anymore. All these companies, and it's, it's big business, there's 17 of these multinational large corporations with over a billion dollars worth of taxpayer-paid guaranteed or insured loans since 2007. They're the biggest by far uh, beneficiary of this quote-unquote bank, uh, and, and it's just not needed anymore. Okay, and Adam, here's the part that bugs me the most. Do we know how often the loans go south? That is, you know, the, the, the creditor, the debtor doesn't pay the bill? You know, we're trying to get to the bottom of that, but, but that is not so, – so when the Export-Import Bank – when they released the database of every single transaction since 2007, the bad loan uh, portfolio is not a part of this database. What? But, but here, it's not. So, so we don't know how many of these loans went bankrupt. But I'll tell you this much: hardly any of these loans go go uh, go under. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why uh, I think that. There's there is a an organization, a private entity, spun off in the 1970s, a private bank called PEFCO, and it's owned by the major corporations that the Export-Import Bank lends to. So they actually own a bank. So, so think about this. So, so this bank makes the loan for the exports. Export-Import Bank approves that and guarantees yeah. and insures it by virtue of the United States taxpayer. Well, the bank that's lending the money guaranteed on the loans by the taxpayer is actually owned oftentimes partially by the company who's benefiting from the export. It is the ultimate in insider trading, and it's fully legal. Yeah, because it means, I mean, the biggest problem with loaning money is getting it paid back. And everybody, Visa, MasterCard, they all have a certain percentage of bad loans. I mean, people say, why do they send all these credit cards to everybody? And then they run them up and don't pay. And they say, because we're going to send out 100,000 credit cards. And we know that uh, 3,000 of the people we send them to will run up a big bill and then not pay. And they may never get the money. And they just spread that cost to everybody else. That's Adam Angievsky. You can find all the data he just talked about at OpenTheBooks.com. He's also a columnist at Forbes.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And you know naysayers always go to the head of the line, just come equipped with a strong opposing point of view, which usually gets screened out on talk shows. On this show, you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. If you send emails, they all come right to me and no one else. And if you get a reply, well, I try to reply to all of them. That's the courtesy I'd like to extend to you. If you take the time to write to me, I'll write back. Now, if you write me a book, I'm not going to write you a book back, but uh, send it to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You can find the question every day at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, which I'm more enthusiastic about, not completely enthusiastic about, but more more so than I was before Elon Musk bought a 9% stake in the company and got a seat on the board of directors. Um, now, there are a lot of ways I can describe our friend Dr. Henry Miller. And Henry and I don't always agree, but that, that's apparently okay with Henry and certainly okay with me. He is a doctor. He is a molecular biologist. He's a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. And now, apparently, he is a Twitter scofflaw. Dr. Miller, welcome back. 
Good to be with you, as always, did I, Lars. Did I hit the description accurately? Uh, Twitter has now dis- de- de- determined that you are persona non grata. What happened? You you did. Before we get into that, I wanted to mention one thing. Yeah. Um, today is the 77th anniversary of the U.S. bombing of Nagasaki with the plutonium-based bomb. And there's a wonderful, gripping article about it in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, that describes the backstory behind that, how almost everything that could go wrong went wrong, and yet it was a success and it ended the war. So if if your listeners can find it, it's called The Harrowing Story of the Nagasaki Bombing Mission, and it's it's absolutely gripping. <laughs> now we can talk about uh, something. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because everybody focuses on Hiroshima, and they don't often focus on Nagasaki. And, it, of course, it took the two bombs uh, to end that war and save, by some estimates, up to two million lives on both sides of the conflict, both Japan and the United States, and it was the appropriate thing to do. I mean, in past, years gone by, I've spent considerable time defending the decision to do that. Uh, most people, I think, uh, agree with me, but there are at least a few people out there who say, no, we never should have dropped the bomb. I thought it had value not just then at the time, but it's had value since then. So I'll commend them to that article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. By the way, Dr. Miller, um, isn't that the same organization that also created the uh, the clock, the big how many how many minutes from midnight are we? That, that describes it is, it, is, it, it is yes yeah well i wondered with everything i hate to say this but you know it's going to sound partisan but with everything joe biden has been doing with or not doing about iran and doing with both russia and china you would almost think that there'd be headlines everywhere saying joe biden's making the clock kick uh, tick ever so much closer to midnight because I mean, the the potential dispute with Russia seems like something that would advance that clock, not in a good way. And the potential for a conflict with China seems the same way. And they're both nuclear-armed superpowers. Uh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, I think, uh, kicked that uh, hand a little closer to midnight, too, with her trip to Taiwan. Didn't seem to accomplish very much except to, uh, uh, to uh, constitute saber-rattling. I guess, although although when China declares that the United States visiting our friends uh, on their soil is saber-rattling, I, I think the Chinese are out of line. But we, that's a discussion for another day. I want to know how you got kicked off Twitter. Yeah, this was really very strange. It, on um, July 28th, uh, I ran across a fascinating article uh, from uh, it, that was published in Science uh, from the lab of uh, Professor Pamela Bjorkman at Caltech. And it was called uh, Nanoparticle Vaccine Protects Against a Spectrum of COVID-19 Causing Variants and Related Viruses. And what they did was to uh, create a multivalent um, vaccine that had uh, eight different spike proteins in it with different uh, binding sites that they thought and found would protect against uh, a, a wide spectrum of new subvariants, even ones that hadn't yet been uh, been created, had been been seen in the natural world. Uh, so uh, I I posted the title of the article, the link, and said that it was from the lab of uh, Professor Bjorkman at Caltech. Uh, who's the David Baltimore Professor of Biology there. And 
it had special attraction to me because David Baltimore, who endowed this chair, was my virology professor at MIT. But that's wow. a, that's a different story. So uh, a few days later, I get a t- uh, a, an email from Twitter that said, uh, we, uh, we understand that there are uh, difficulty finding reliable sources and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, we require the removal of content that may pose a risk to people's health, including content that goes directly against guidance from authoritative sources. That's a quote. And wow. Then, and below it was my tweet. And then, and then this is where it became not only puzzling but offensive. It, it said, by clicking delete, you acknowledge that your tweet violated the yep. Twitter rules. And if you think we've made a mistake, submit an appeal. So I submitted an appeal, and I explained my bona fides, and that uh, this was an important scientific finding in a peer-reviewed journal, and never heard anything from them for a couple of days. So finally, wanting to get back on Twitter, I clicked delete and was restored. But having to admit that I violated their misinformation rules made me feel like one of these political prisoners in China or Russia, where you stand up in front of the court and say, yes, I criticize the government, I repent, and I, I do deserve 20 years in a penal colony. Doc, you, you are at the place where I was a couple of years ago when I put a tweet up and, uh, and I had the same treatment. And it was, confess your sins and all will be forgiven. But to confess your sins means you have to say, yes, I put up something false. They're effective. It's, it's basically saying, we want you to confess. And if you confess, we'll, we'll let you go. Well, and this is a private company in which you are the product that they sell to the advertisers and you get the entertainment value of or whatever pro- promotional value of being on Twitter. But if you cross their line and it's hard to tell where the lines are, I mean, ordinarily, Doc, um, you're a guy who advocates for the vaccines. I'm a guy who's still skeptical about the vaccines uh, and I've chosen not to. Uh, you know, to participate. And, and there we differ, but that's okay. We're friends and, you know, it's it's okay for friends to disagree. But Twitter usually goes after the people who say anything adverse about the vaccines. Uh, did, do you think they read your comment or your tweet, your posting uh, that way? Well, what I think happened is that uh, <clears throat> people who don't like my work, my, my viewpoints, uh, got together and complained to Twitter support. And some uh, munchkin uh, uncritically took their, uh, their criticism as gospel and suspended me just on that basis, because there's no way that my three or four sentence tweet could be construed as containing any misinformation. It's just inconceivable. So I think it was their capitulating to a few uh, dissidents, if you will, who don't like me. I think that's well, what happened. Well, I, I would agree with you, because actually one of the things I, I recall that I got booted off to one of the times I've been booted off Twitter, was I was having a back and forth with a, a local politician. It was a young lady, you know, and, and I challenged her on some things because she said, well, you know, we, you know, the police don't need to do this or that or the other thing. That's Dr. Henry Miller. You can find what he writes at henrymillermd.org, and maybe soon you'll be able to find him on Twitter again. Doc, it's a pleasure. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Let's do the calls in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the daily question that we put up based on the news of the day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. But I want you to, I want you to consider this. There's something that is very, I think, very pernicious that's going on in American capitalism, on the financial markets, and unfortunately, it's even making its way into state and uh, state and federal agencies as well, and that is called ESG. And what it is is, I mean, on, on its face, if somebody says, well, I'm only going to vo- in, invest in companies uh, whose values I believe in, fine, you can do that. Uh, but what happens is when governments start to do this and when they start to push ESG, uh, then an, a whole host of other issues crop up because you say we're going to pass up on some profits by only investing in the things that some political groups say are okay or not. Well, Ben Weingarten is with Real Clear Investigations, and it's a pleasure to have him back. Hey, Ben, how are you? I'm well. How about you? Not too bad. Would you mind uh, talking about what Real Clear Investigations has done, the guide to politicized capitalism? And it very much involves ESG. So if I got any of that wrong, feel free to correct it for my audience. I want them to have the good information. No, you're absolutely right. And the genesis of this project has been that in recent years, companies have inserted themselves in a variety of hot button political and even cultural issues as your listeners well know, that generally speaking have nothing to do with the top or bottom lines of their companies. And that marks a significant change from what businesses in the past have done, which is to focus on profit, the business of business. And that might entail lobbying for certain policies, supporting certain candidates, but not wading into all manner of areas completely unmoored from their businesses. With this explosion in political activism among particularly major corporations, there is now starting to be a backlash, generally speaking, at the state level and also among so-called conservative shareholder activists. But what we wanted to do was lay out for readers in an accessible guide sort of the history and the development of the politicization of capital markets and capitalism itself, lay out the ESG aspect of it, the environmental, social, and governance policies that many companies are adhering to using to justify their political activism, look at the pushback to it, and then see the various ways in which, on the one hand, there are corporations that are pursuing these causes, and on the other hand, what corporations, to the there are such corporations or small businesses that exist that allow you to operate in the marketplace as a consumer without necessarily violating your values. And so we try to capture that in this database. We view it as a reference guide for everyone in America who, as they go about their daily tasks, may or may not want to support causes directly or indirectly that those businesses they frequent may engage in. And so we put forth this guide to allow you as a consumer, as an investor, and beyond as an American to understand the stakes of what's going on and where your money is going these days. Well, I, I, I want to get to a practical example, Ben, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but 
I mean, one of the biggest issues lately has been alternative forms of energy versus fossil fuel. And there are people who feel very strongly one side or the other. I happen to be a, a proponent of fossil fuel. I think America is blessed because it, it has enormous quantities of it. And then there are people who say, well, I don't, I don't like gasoline. I don't like diesel. I don't like oil or any of the other fossil fuels, uh, natural gas, uh, liquid petroleum gas, et cetera. Fine. Don't buy it. Don't drive a car. Don't heat your home with that stuff. That's okay if you want to do that. Louisiana recently said, we're not going to use BlackRock as one of the places where we put state-invested monies because BlackRock has, as I understand it, effectively declared war on, on the fossil fuel companies. Now, if I, I guess if you want to invest your money that way and say, you go to, you know, if you say, I've got my 401k, uh, where should I put it? And they say, well, you can put it in this spread of stocks. Well, I don't want any oil stocks. Well, they're, they're lucrative. Well, okay, I don't want them. Fine. You can do that as an individual. The state of Louisiana says we're not storing state money that we have to put in investments, you know, for various purposes, pensions and everything else. Um, if, if the very people that are investing the money have decided we're going to declare war on fossil fuels because fossil fuels are one of the biggest industries in Louisiana. So why would we cut our own throats that way? This is where it comes home, because if you live in a state in America that says uh, we're not going to put monies into t- uh, cigarettes or into you know, vaping cigarettes or, or we're not going to put money in oil or we're not going to put money in these various other things, that's fine, except that if you're accepting a lower rate of return, at some point your state, you know, the tax revenues are going to go down and the earnings are going to go down. And guess who's going to have to make up the difference? The citizens do. That's where even if you don't believe in ESG or do believe in ESG, you may end up paying the bill for decisions that are made based on that. Now, if you think I'm off base on any of that, I want to make people understand this affects you even if you have nothing to do directly yourself with ESG. That's absolutely right. And you have in certain states their public pension funds that actually focus on ESG with their investing. And so consequently, they're going to discriminate against companies in the fossil fuel industry, they may well drive lower returns for the beneficiaries. And ultimately, to your point, you as the taxpayer may be left fitting, footing the bill uh, for the difference there. And it's worth saying, you, you referenced BlackRock. Why is BlackRock so important? BlackRock is the world's asset manager in terms of the trillions of dollars have under management. There are three major asset managers in the country, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. The average Fortune 500 company, those three asset managers collectively hold about 20% of the stock on average in every one of those companies. With that power that they have, owning that stock, usually on behalf of those who put their money into a BlackRock fund or a State Street fund or a Vanguard fund, they get to vote on corporate policies, including among them ESG policies and the board of directors members who themselves may push ESG policy. So consequently, you unwittingly be funding a company and the Blackstruck State Street and Vanguard are all very much pro ESG. You may be unwittingly supporting through your 401k or you're just regular investing uh, these entities that may well hate your guts or certainly disagree with your views on fossil fuels. Beyond that, the power of these companies is massive. If a BlackRock says we're down on fossil fuels, what can they do? Well, for one thing, they could threaten to divest from fossil fuel companies, which disadvantages them 
in the capital markets. They can threaten the executives within those companies, delicately or not so delicately. And then, of course, when it comes to BlackRock specifically, former BlackRock executives work in the Biden administration, and they work in areas that are, of course, capital related. BlackRock was one of the major cheerleaders for the SEC's proposed green climate disclosure rule, which would impose majorly costly regulations on companies, forcing them to put out, you know, what is your, the size of your greenhouse gas emissions and disclose it. There are other beneficiaries who are pro the environmentalist uh, who also push that green policy and stand to benefit from it, like a Mike Bloomberg, for example, yep. who controls Bloomberg financial data. And these companies will comply with those regulations and report them through Bloomberg. And he's the one backing these disclosures. So you see it's a circular relationship here. These major financial services industries in particular are beneficiaries. But if you dig deeper in other industries as well, you see that there is a cynical profit-driven aspect to this. Absolutely right. That's Ben Weingarten. You can find the guide to politicize capitalism at Real Clear Investigations. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. And if you want to jump into the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Email talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. It has to do with the climate-friendly nature that Joe Biden says we'll achieve for all military vehicles, even if it costs billions of dollars to do it. And we could talk about that with Hans von Spakowski because he's the senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, but there are better things to talk to him about. Hans, welcome back. Larry, thanks for having me back. We spent all this time and all this money in a Cold War with the old Soviet Union, and and we beat them, and we beat them fair and square, and beat them peace through strength. Uh, and now what we've got instead is we've got a war that's going on right on our own college campuses and paid for by American taxpayers like you and me. Is that is that the picture you draw for us? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the totalitarian ideology that ran the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union fell, it, it settled at our academic institutions. You know, that's the last refuge of Marxism across the country. And you can see it in everything they're doing, from cancel culture to the censorship of speakers uh, to the wokeism and all the gender dogma that basically rejects the the biological reality. Well, and in fact, earlier this hour, Hans, I was telling folks how Barack Obama gave a major speech on the Stanford campus. We spent a couple of weeks down there a couple of weeks ago because we were at Hoover. Uh, But he gave a speech there yesterday and uh, or the day before and he said that he is just about a first amendment absolutist and then turns right back around and says we need the government to determine what is misinformation so i i guess liberals are capable of talking out of both sides of their mouth at all times oh no that is absolutely correct and that that was just appalling what he said but it revealed his real his real motive which is uh yeah, liberals believe that uh, you can speak if you agree with what they say. But if you have a differing opinion, why, well, that's misinformation, and that needs to be censored. I know this would probably get me canceled by woke culture, but, Hans, I, I always think about that phrase that I, I understand Henry Ford. It may be apocryphal, but Henry Ford said, I've got a car in any color you want as long as it's black. Uh, I, I like to say the liberals, <laughs> the, the liberals say they agree with all kinds of different points of view, as long as they are their points of view. 
And, and, and that's the kind of diversity they want. They say, yeah, we're, we're open to all points of view, as long as you agree with us. If you don't, we're going to see if we can get you shut down. Yeah, no, unfortunately, that is rampant throughout our culture. And look, I'm afraid it's going to get worse because you have all these students in schools, um, starting, frankly, in elementary school, going through college, who are living on campuses with these uh, horrendous speech codes and being taught there's only one way of thinking. And I'm afraid that when they all get out and go into industry and government, you know, with the contempt that they've shown or been taught for the First Amendment, I said, I think things are going to get worse. Well, and I wonder about that because there, there was a phenomenon, and I'll make a weird comparison, if you will. I've read a lot of histories of Richard Nixon, and they said one of the problems Nixon ran into was that when he was a politician, uh, even a, a senator from California, that he was he was used to this all this favorable media treatment, you know, and and he and and then he goes off to Washington D.C. and boom, he's surrounded by not so favorable media treatment that he was largely treated very well. Anybody who goes from an environment where everything goes your way. And then all of a sudden they're dropped into an environment where, hey, this is the real world. It doesn't always go your way. That uh, They're shocked by it. And sometimes they react not very well to the idea, hold on a second. You mean, you mean you're not always going to agree with me? No. And you're right. When, when somebody comes off a college campus where certain ideas aren't even allowed to be said out loud, and then they get out into the real world and they find out they have coworkers and their coworkers, many of whom may not have had the so-called benefit of a, of a liberal college education emphasis on liberal. They say, hold on, you can't say that. And you go, yeah, I can. And you have no business telling me I can't say it. Right. I'm not talking about rude or crude speech, but I'm just saying, oh, I have a different point of view than you. I think high taxes are a bad idea. Well, on our college campus, high taxes are always good because it was paying for our education. You know, th- this kind of you know, it- it's like taking a-, a person who's always been rich uh, and then dropping them into an environment where they're poor and they don't understand why things don't always go their way. Yeah, I'm afraid a lot of today's college graduates are going to be shocked by reality when they get out into the into the working world. But, hey, you know, some of the universities are finally getting hit with what they ought to get hit with, which are legal, legal lawsuits, legal judgments against them for the bad things that they're, that they're doing, their misbehavior. Well, you want to talk about Oberlin College and, and sketch yeah. that out because I've done it for my audience, but Oberlin College and this tiny little family-run bakery, probably run by a lot of people. I don't know if none of them had graduated from college, but this is a little blue-collar business, and they got into a fight, and the bakery won. Yeah, they uh, Oberlin College just lost an appeal. Um, they have a $31 million judgment against them, including... $25 million in punitive damages for defaming this bakery. Uh, Gibson's is a very old establishment. And a couple of years ago, um, uh, three students, uh, one student in particular, came into their bakery, tried to buy wine with a fake ID, and then shoplifted two bottles and ran out of the store. That's Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. It's First Amendment Friday. I'm glad to get your calls and your emails. Vote in our Twitter poll and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. 
So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.